0: Welcome to the Do One Better podcast. Today we talk a little bit about what it's like to run an NGO and an international foundation with operations in Turkey. Some of the political challenges, some of the operational challenges, and indeed some of the dynamics between international foundations and operating NGOs on the ground in Turkey. Thank you for joining and here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host. I'm normally based in London, but today I am in Holland. The purpose of the podcast is to encourage listeners around the world to be more philanthropic, to act sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we kick things off, if you press the subscribe button on your iPhone or Android device, that would really be great. And today, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Ayla Goxel, who is the CEO of Ozagin Social Investments. We met two or three years ago at a conference for funders who are focused on early childhood development. So Isla, thank you very much for taking the time today to join us and welcome on board to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled with what you're doing. I, I keep sharing your, the example of your podcast to friends in Turkey, especially and saying, this is what you need to do in Turkey. Look, <laughs> it's such a great idea. <laughs> so you'll have copycat soon.
0: Great, 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 that's good. It's a good form of flattery. As you tell, you're in Turkey right now, right? Yes,
1: yes, Okay.
0: Tell me a little bit about, um, I guess, about Özgün Social Investments and about you. How did Ayla Goksel yeah. get to be the CEO of this organization and, and, uh, and the career trajectory?
1: So I grew up in the UK, as you can probably tell from my accent. But my, you know, my parents were Turkish migrant workers that ended up in uh, in the UK. And uh, I'd always been interested in social issues at school and uh, at university. You know, development economics was one of my favourite courses. And I moved to Turkey straight after university in uh, in the UK, um, really more for an adventure, uh, thinking that you know life was going to be all like it is in the summers or sun and sand and <laughs> uh, fun times. And, um, but I was, uh, you know, I was also interested in working in a, in a developing country and where better the, to go than, than my own. And I started working purely by chance at a, a startup NGO that was uh, founded by Aishan Ozigin, who is uh, the wife of the, uh, the principal, Husna Özgin. And her startup NGO, and this is way before, you know, 25 years ago when I don't think the term startup was even around, especially for NGOs. It was called the Mother Child Education Foundation, and I was the first employee there. Uh, We were a group of three uh, people, colleagues. uh, And uh, our aim was to take to scale uh, an innovative, uh, evidence-based early childhood parenting program across Turkey, um, long story short, within the, I think it was by the end of our first year, an amazing opportunity came out, came, uh, came by uh, through the World Bank. The World Bank has had uh, provided the loan to, to Turkey um, that had been around for years and years, uh, but unfortunately, Turkey hadn't actually used the loan in the way that it was meant to. It was going to be sent back to Washington, as it were. And then the World Bank said, well, if you find me a project that benefits women especially, then I'll be willing to extend the the loan uh, and the agreement, uh, the the terms. And the mother-child education program that we had developed was taken on and the program went to scale. And I'll talk a little bit more maybe later on uh, about scaling up and programs and and, and partnerships. But that's how my, my own journey started. But it's also how I began working with the Özyin family and the Özyin family is Aysen and Hüsnü Özyin and uh, now they have children and grandchildren but they are, um, you know, Hüsnü is a self-made billionaire in Turkey uh, largely in finance but now, you know, a conglomerate, he has different business interests but also two of the most philanthropically minded uh, individuals that you'll like to find in, uh, in Turkey and just to give you an idea of scale um, they've invested over around five, between around 525 million dollars uh, right. in in Turkey, and how have they done this? So the Ozin Social Investments is actually a it's a group of uh, different organisations that have been founded or supported by uh, by the Ozin family. Okay, and that is chip which is where I started my career. The Mother Child Education Foundation. We have the Ozin Foundation, which is the family foundation. We have uh, the Ozean University, uh, and then we have a bunch of other smaller um, uh, initiatives or organizations that we support. But uh, the first thing is that our investments are 90%, or around 90% is actually in education. The family is very committed to education, and I also have that bias myself, to education, especially in Turkey, you know, where... Um, the opportunities for social mobility are really, well, through many countries, in fact, uh, opportunities for social mobility uh, is especially through through education. And given that there are uh, such, especially when we first started, poor access and poor quality uh, from right from early childhood through to higher education. So there was a, a real opportunity to make a, a difference and really get a return on, on your investments. And we say investments, but it's not... I should just sort of explain that. It's not social investments in the term that you would call it in terms of impact investment. We don't expect any returns uh, in in financial returns. Um, so it's still very much uh, philanthropy. But, uh, you know, we call it social investments because that's the mindset that, that the family have and that I share is that we're actually investing in the future of our country in well, not just the future, the present and the future of our country. And, it, and it's an investment, if you and like.
0: And $500 million is not a small amount. $500 million no. dollars sounds very considerable.
1: Yeah. And that's over. I mean, bear in mind that uh, although it's 25 years, it's predominantly over the past uh, 15 years. And I would say around half of that has been the university. And obviously, the capital investment there is is very sizable. Um, but just to give you a couple of indications around... Scale as well beyond the, the financial scope. In terms of the work that we do, we've touched directly 1.5 million lives. Uh, that's through our programs or people that go through our university or our uh, or the schools that we've we built. But in addition, the investments that we've made in in advocacy and policy and awareness raising, uh, it's obviously the impact is is beyond uh, millions. It's impacting the. Impact in the tens of millions, but obviously that's much more difficult to, to sort of calculate, uh, if you will. Oh, we have numbers, but I wouldn't be able to say that's 100% because of what we did there, because there's often a, a combination of, of factors in a policy change or in an awareness raising uh, that happens.
0: What's it like? Um, because you're someone who, who wears two hats, I think, right? On the one hand, you're very much involved in the foundations world and by that, let's say, Western foundations uh, who collaborate and talk to each other uh, considerably. So you you have engagement on that side, and you're also very much involved uh, in the front lines in Turkey as a delivery organization. So you have the social investments, I was thinking social investments uh, that interacts with the big foundations that that most listeners know, and yet also a delivery partner on the ground. What are some of the differences that you notice in context, in operating context, yeah. you know, in terms yeah. of how the strategy is formulated, the concerns yeah. that, that, that might be in the minds of a Western Foundation CEO versus a local yeah. CEO. Tell me a little bit about those dynamics. Yeah.
1: Uh, that's, a, um, that's an excellent question. And there are so many different ways that I can answer it. Firstly, I feel very fortunate that I'm able to straddle these two diverse and different environments, if you like. And I think each very much feeds the other, you know, I feel far more authentic when I'm able to go into these big international meetings, having had the first hand experience of actually working in the uh, on the ground and, you know, uh, spending extended amounts of time with, uh, with beneficiaries and with program staff, because that's that's part of my day job as well. It's not just sort of like going in and out. Uh, for flying visits but on the other hand whatever the conversations and the insights that I get from those uh, the international exposure it very much inspires me uh, and feeds through into my my thinking that I you know I hope to be able to transfer to my colleagues you know this is the way that so and so is doing it in this country isn't that a great idea how about we take it from there and I you know I'm a uh, a great believer in imitation is the best form of flattery. And, and I've imitated uh, many, many wonderful organisations all across the world. Sometimes I've credited them, sometimes I've forgotten. So if anyone sees stuff that we're doing and they think, oh, that's ours, please reach out to me and I will be sure to mention your name next time. So there are a couple of things. One, I think there's also a distinction between, between, to be made not just between national and international, but also uh, family uh, foundations, because this is, at the end of the day, in Social Investments, we get around um, well, around 70 to 80% of our funding comes from the family. Now, that changes uh, according to the different organizations. For example, ACHEV is more of an NGO. It gets a third of its funding from, from the family. So the remaining two-thirds, it has to um, fundraise through uh, alternative, alternative means. So that means that uh, it's more of a um, an independent like a, more of an NGO than a philanthropic outfit, as you will. So that's one distinction I think is important. Also, whether you have a living uh, family member in your philanthropy, because you know then you're uh, you're still very much probably working on shaping their philanthropic vision as well as their as well as their legacy that they uh, that they want to. To leave behind so those are the different things what is it that's different I mean this whole thing about you know on the ground work versus in the boardrooms and, and meeting rooms or you know the Davoses or the different foundation uh, headquarters it is so easy to get removed from uh, reality and I find myself questioning that even though I'm one of the more fortunate ones because I have the opportunity to be engaged that it, it is very easy especially in over professionalized organisations, which we used to wear as a badge of honour, saying that you know we're professional organisations, we have our systems and procedures, etc., in place. But uh, there is the risk uh, of both over-professionalising, as well as um, you know sometimes maybe mimicking the the private sector uh, approach mm-hmm. e- too much, and that's I think a, a challenge that that we're facing, and that's where we really need to. Keep going back to what it is that we're we're trying to do, and is it really meeting the needs that we we set out? And are those needs still the same? That's what's keeping me on my toes.
0: So, are you generally um, when you're when you're in one of these um, one of these big conferences in D.C. or London? Are you generally thinking, okay, these guys, the people in the room, get it, or are you generally rolling your eyes back, thinking, oh my goodness, here we go again?
1: You know what? The majority of the time, I'm blessed to be surrounded by really smart people who really care about what's going on in the world. So the times that I roll my eyes, and they do happen, it's less than uh, than than would make me comfortable. So I, I'm happy to say that. But what I find most beneficial in the interactions with the the international foundations and is having that bigger, more global approach and more global. Insight, if you will, because it's also very easy to become quite uh, introverted when you're working in a national or even like a community context, and it seems like you know that's the whole world there, and it's not. And you tend to become oblivious to you know maybe global trends that are happening, or emerging themes that are happening, or a different terminology that has emerged that better describes what you're trying to do, or maybe you're. Approach has become a little bit outdated. So I usually tend to benefit from those big international um, conferences or whatever, in terms of getting that that thinking. Of course, sometimes there are times when you get when you get frustrated with that they may be a little bit removed and it can be too global and too you know too big picture. But it's up to us to to try and pull those people that are making that mistake up. So what becomes critical here is the the dialogue between different organizations, the dialogue in terms of, and the dialogue that needs to be on on an equal footing, Um, you know, because I think those people that are sometimes working on the front lines and really having a difficult um, time, sometimes even at risk of life, uh, it can also become uh, easy for them to say, oh, they don't know what we're doing and uh, sort of disregard the other's position. So both sides do it if we are able to get on a more equal basis of understanding and really hear each other's side and i'm talking here you know both those work on the front lines as as opposed to maybe work in boardrooms as well as work more on the national level and international level Uh, often there is a power imbalance uh, and that power imbalance may come about because of you know financing because of political clout because of whatever but it's up to us i think as Authentic leaders, and I don't really like that term, but uh, it seems appropriate here, uh, as leaders in, in philanthropy who are really here to, to do one better, as you said, and to, to improve the It's up to us to sort of nudge ourselves as well.
0: Two questions from that. One is, how do you improve the communications between what happens at a foundation and what happens with a delivery partner? Still, how do you, how do you improve those communications? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have that challenge and the other the other is in terms of identifying good solid credible honest effective delivery partners on the ground again a lot of people who are philanthropically minded or organizations who are funding it's one of those perennial questions how do you identify somebody who you can trust in -hmm. a country that perhaps you don't know intimately well so, those, yeah. two, those two are really interesting questions for me. How do you improve those communications? Yeah. And then, how do you identify great delivery partners?
1: So, let me start with the second one. Uh, and I'll do it with an example um, from Turkey, and that's probably quite topical as well. Okay. You know, Turkey, as you know, has been the, the greatest recipient of uh, Syrian refugees here over the past, uh, you know, what is it, now, five or seven years. And there was a huge influx of international organizations that wanted to work in Turkey, that wanted to work in this humanitarian crisis. And Turkey was suddenly inundated with uh, a whole bunch of, um, of organizations. And the government at the time, uh, although it's the same government, because it was such a new issue, they, uh, they didn't quite know what to do. They hadn't set, in their, set up their control. So it was almost like a free for all. Um, you know, whoever could get in the fastest, whoever could set up their operation the fastest. Uh, Seemed to be there on the ground and you know Turkish organizations working as well but obviously Turkish organizations couldn't really match in terms of you know funding or um, professional staff couldn't really match the the weight that the international organizations had not all, all of them came in and they all you know all of them with the best of intentions said oh, you know, we really want to work with local partners. Local partners are critical to us. Fast forward, uh, you know, two years later, those organizations, most of them had set up very small partnerships in terms of, it was like really tokenism more than anything else. Mm -hmm. The big work was still, and, you know, especially the big procurement projects, uh, because obviously in a humanitarian crisis where there's a lot of procurement going on, and uh, it's, it's different than maybe... More um, programmatic and development work. So that was all done by the international organisations. And again, we said a few times that you can't just con- concentrate on the um, on the humanitarian aspect because very quickly this is going to turn into a development crisis as well. And when I say we, I'm talking about a, a group of NGOs that have been working in uh, in this issue in Turkey because we, you know, we had um, experience from. Uh, from the southeast of Turkey, not quite on the same scale, but uh, we had experience in these communities, especially in the recipient host communities. Uh, and unfortunately today this well, this is one of the problems that we're facing, but I'll, I'll get to that. So and I think many of them like you, they didn't want uh, not like you, but the question that you ask is how do you identify the good partners? Mm-hmm. One, they didn't really want to take the time out to identify the new partner, the, the, the good partners they could trust. But second, I'm not sure it was just about the time. Um, I, I'm not sure that their intention was really that they wanted to, to sort of share the pie, as it were. And, you know, I'm, I am I've put it quite crudely, and I mean pie not just in terms of funding or, or dollars, but, you know, that whole control, like giving up um, control. Mm-hmm. Because collaboration and partnership requires a whole different modus operandi. You can't sort of go in and do it the way that you... you do it if you're alone, because it might take more more time and it may t- take more effort. Identifying partners, I mean, what, whatever you do in the world, what do you do? You research, you ask trusted sources, you you speak to people, you ask, you do your due diligence in, in different ways. And there are, t- there are there are ways that you can do this even under most rapid circumstances. I, I don't think it's a problem of lack of information. At least in Turkey's case, I'm not going to speak on behalf of you know the whole world. It wasn't really a lack of information, but more um, maybe the, the motivation, uh, the overriding motivation wasn't really to, to set up uh, and do this through partners. And unfortunately, we're now suffering one of the consequences. And um, uh, what do I mean by that? So what happened is that you know, the whole bunch of uh, organizers came in, they didn't really set up because that would have gained them political capital in Turkey as well. So, and the government, once it had sort of like come to its not to come to its senses, but once it sort of like realised that the situation was going beyond its control, and there were all kinds of threats, not from necessarily the you know the well-meaning international organisations, but other threats from different parts of the borders, they decided, they realised they really needed to uh, to take this in hand, and they ended up throwing out a bunch of. Uh, international organizations, international relief organizations that are working in Turkey, and they banned a few of them, you know, Doctors Without Orders, and Save the Children couldn't get their operating license, etc. Uh, and I think this is a shame. You know, we lost out as the Turkish civil society to exchange your community because we could have learned because these organizations have a lot more experience than we have in these types of relief and emergency operations. We could have learned from that. We could have built up local capacity, and they could have learned from us as well. So, you know, I don't think. Oh, great! Now the internationals are out. We can sort of like take over uh, at all. Uh, it's it's a it's a shame. But the second thing that happened, and now we're seeing we're sort of like suffering that more, is because we didn't really have this dialogue. We could have used the international organisations better um, to act as like credible supporters uh, with us and improve our own advocacy uh, in our government with our government in Turkey. And uh, this would have meant that we really uh, had much better development and integrate—not integration, yeah—integration projects happening from the word go. Um, we're having huge problems in Istanbul and many provinces in Turkey where the, uh, there are sizable Syrian refugees because of um, lack of uh, in- integration. Maybe not the right word to use, but. Uh, not but were well, the host communities uh, and the Syrian guest communities not being able to live together uh, for one reason or another and You know, we could have planned this a lot better. We could have planned this a lot better. Sorry That was a very long answer to, to one of your questions But I think it's important to sort of give it as an, ex- give an example as well. So it's really grounded in, in in real life
0: Do you find the international partners when they come in and operate in Turkey they they may not be as open to local ideas as one would ideally hope. Do they come in saying, "Look, this is the this is the highly prescriptive formula we have. This is this is what you guys are going to do," or do they listen to the local dynamics, concerns, voices, and uh, and take those on board?
1: Unfortunately, I, I personally believe that it's more of the first, in the sense that. You know, most organizations, especially the ones that are coming in to either operate or to fund something, they have their own theory of change, which mm-hmm. is, you know, which is fine, you know. They ha- they, they think that there's something, that they, they don't come in just say, I want to help the people of Turkey. They say that they want to, you know, improve educational access for girls in Turkey, uh, for example. Uh, and they believe that one way that you can do that is through conditional cash transfers, mm-hmm. for example. Um, so that's their uh, that's their take, and, uh, you know, and they will be seeking an organization that sort of shares that same vision and theory of change with them rather than going out and saying, you know what, we really want to improve girls' access to education. What do you think we can do as an organization? What are the different, and what are the, the more risky things that we can do? Um, there's not a lot of risk-taking, uh, but I think that's the... I think that's true for philanthropy in, in general. Uh, you know, we, have a, we have a low risk tolerance, and especially if you're working in volatile political uh, and economic environments, uh, your risk tolerance becomes even lower.
0: Tell me a little bit about that. You operate in a, in, a, in a fluid political environment, which has its own peculiar dynamics. What does that mean for your day-to-day? What does it mean to operate in such a setting?
1: I have the benefit of being able to speak from uh, 25 years of experience rather than just the past three years. And I think that somebody that uh, that didn't have uh, these years of experience would answer the question very differently if they were okay. just to base it on the past couple of years. So I've been working with the same government in Turkey, they were elected in 2001, so 16, 17 years. And the, most impactful work that we did and the biggest growth and uh, that we achieved was actually in the first five years of of the same government uh, the same party uh, when they were very reformist and uh, you know they really wanted to make change and they really opened up channels of communication with civil society um, so I, I don't think it's it's a, it's a party issue that's the first thing I want to say. okay many of the, the bureaucrats that we worked with are the same bureaucrats that we worked with uh, back then And we've done some uh, we managed to do some amazing work uh, just to give you a couple of examples you know the, the numbers that I've given you they're all based on partnerships they're all based on you know the work that we were able to do with that enable environment. Uh, you can't just go in, it's not like you're going into a desert where there's no one around you and you just go in and build your well and move out. Uh, you, you do it with, within a whole a whole context. So we are able to do all that. Uh, unfortunately, the past few years, because of different threats in society, which I'm not going to go into, but for one reason or another, the, uh, the, the civil space in, in Turkey has become as shrunk as we all know. And the civil space is shrinking in in many other countries as well, especially in more authoritarian uh, regimes. And what does this mean for us? One thing it meant very concretely is that some of the programs that we ran as the Mother Child Education uh, Education Foundation, for example, uh, we did this through an MOU of the Ministry of Education. We would train the trainers of Ministry of Education teachers, and then they would go and implement... Our program, evidence-based program, in different communities in Turkey, in different uh, across in in school buildings. Um, In 2015, the uh, the Ministry of Education decided to um, uh, revoke the these MOUs. So we no longer had an operational mandate. Um, uh, It meant that suddenly we weren't able to train new trainers. We weren't able to go and supervise our existing trainers. And uh, the, the programs that had been implemented uh, across the country for so many years uh, were now uh, under risk of extinction. For a few months, we were sort of like almost shell-shocked. Well, not a few months, but at least a month we were sort of like shell-shocked. And mm-hmm. um, like, what are we going to do? Uh, now, in hindsight, I can say, you know, it's a good thing that happened. Because we, it, it made us get out of our comfort zone because we sort of like, we've got an automatic pilot almost. you know, That's what we did. We had this uh, whole system set up uh, and the, the rug was sort of like pulled out from under our feet. And it made us think, what can we do? And it made us become a little bit more creative and it made us become a little bit more hungry. So what did uh, you do? So what did we do? We went out back into the communities and we started to seek out uh, partnerships with municipalities, which we'd never, would always worked with central government, with municipalities and with local NGOs, and with um, local uh, loosely formed uh, and mobilised initiatives. These were a bunch of people that had got together. They weren't associated, they weren't formalised, but they were a group of people that said, you know, we want to do something, but we just don't know what to do. So we sort of like sort that. This this was very labour intensive, by the way. You know. Yeah, I can um, imagine. Yeah, rather than sort of like having a list sent to you once a year saying these are the provinces you're going to work in, these are the teachers that are going to apply, um, you had to go out and almost you know, sh- sift the sand uh, out to try and find uh, those partners. Some of them, the partnerships, it would just work for one term, and then it wouldn't continue. Some of them would continue long term. Some of them, they would say, okay, you know, it's great. We want to talk to you, but um, you you guys are, uh, you're not quite tight with the government at the moment. So is it okay if we don't put this in writing? You know, it's fine if we just sort of like work together and we're very happy, but we don't really want to put it in writing. And that for us, again, was like, you know, because we had all these procedures set up in place and, you know, uh, lots of uh, boxes that had to be ticked. We had to move to a more informal and more fluid, which is how you put it, I, I quite like that, a more fluid way of uh, way of working. So there is a, a, a bright side to it. So you, uh, well,
0: you, you, look, you look at it in a, in a, in a nice, um, you put it in a good way. I imagine yes. would it be...
1: But not every organization has the same story. There are many organizations that have been shut down in Turkey many of my uh, friends and colleagues have been uh, arrested or uh, some of them are, are being imprisoned so this is also a reality that that we're working with mm-hmm. but uh, you know these fragile contexts uh, it can also be an opportunity for uh for creativity and for for doing something in a different way and you know sometimes appreciating the smaller wins that you have you know before i wouldn't care if they had opened up you know three uh, mothers groups in Hakyare because I was expecting a hundred. Now I know the value of those three mothers groups and I'm like, wow, a great job. Um, so yeah.
0: So I imagine a couple of things on the one hand, the relationships you do have with individual municipalities is probably stronger because it's, you know, it's that, that personalized touch. On the other hand, I would imagine that if you are trying to drive forward systemic change, across the country or large parts of the country, it becomes much more of a challenge. Is that um, fair to say or not necessarily? Yes.
1: Yes, it is. Uh, well, I mean, in terms of sustainability, we'll see. Uh, we've just had local elections in Turkey, so, uh, you know, a lot of the municipalities have changed. Um, uh, but what I do know is that if, you're, if what you're offering uh, meets the needs, Of people's constituents or communities, then uh, you'll get somewhere. Uh, And that's what we found. What we're offering in terms of education, in terms of training, in terms of uh, childcare, you know, it resonates uh, with people and they don't really care which side of the political spectrum you're on Uh, and we're quite apolitical, we're a very apolitical organisation anyway. And they just care that you know, mothers are being able to provide some form of uh, early childhood stimulation uh, to their children, or fathers are, being, uh, are learning uh, how to play a better role in their children's lives, or you know, women are learning basic life skills, and so on and so forth. So that sort of finds its way, uh, if you like.
0: Does it help that you are, after all, a Turkish organization? Does that help in terms of... Of course. It does, right? Yes,
1: yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, um, I think uh, working in Turkey as a foreign organization, very, very difficult. Um, I'm not even sure the number of organizations, foreign organizations that are are working there, Uh, which is a shame. I mean, I think it's a shame because uh, I think having that diversity and that interaction, as I said earlier, uh, it really... uh, There's learning for for both sides.
0: Adaptability seems to be that sort of undercurrent for you in terms of being able to cope with whatever's coming your way.
1: Exactly. Adaptability, um, perseverance. Uh, I mean, if there's something that you believe in, then you've just got to keep at it.
0: So if we're having this conversation in 10 years' time, what would success look like to you?
1: I think a couple of things come to mind. One is, you know, organizationally, as I said, there's a, a whole bunch of organizations that I'm involved in, and I would like, in, in 10 years' time, if they're still around and if they're still <laughs> financially uh, sustainable and if they still sort of remain true to their uh, missions, I think that would really be success. Yeah. First. Uh, because it's, a, as I said, a family uh, that's done this, I really think that uh, sort of like sustaining their legacy but in a way that reflects the dynamic need in, in society, uh, would also be success to me. But more in terms of the concrete, uh, obviously I think that we all want to we want to reach more people and we want to reach more people uh, in need uh, or at risk. Uh, but I really want to improve the, the quality of our programs, uh, whether that you know the whole education programs in Turkey. So really, success would look like having high-impact education programs, whether at the policy level or at the, um, uh, you know, the NGO levels. Two more things that have come to mind. I think they're really important, so I'm going to add them. Throw them in. Um, uh, one is that I think if we manage to embrace the, this digital revolution in Turkey, in, my, in the organizations that I'm a part of, that would really look successful. I mean, I have this... We, we keep talking about it, but we never managed to actually do it. love to be able to translate all of our know-how into these digital platforms that would we'll be able to reach more and more people um, uh, in Turkey. So if we could do that successfully, that would be great. But the final one, I think, is actually the most important one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how we'd measure this, but success would really be having an impact on... The cultural shift in society because this without this cultural shift whether it be in gender whether it be in education and I mean like the mentality shift the the mindset you know um, the, the gender bias having that cultural shift is what sort of like underpins all the work that you do then it becomes a whole lot easier um, so if we could make a difference there uh, I think I could hang up my hat and go
0: home. What's the key takeaway for listeners if you forgot everything that we just spoke about, but oh. maybe took away one salient <laughs> point? What, what would that be? Any words of wisdom?
1: Um, I don't know about words of wisdom. Something that I try and remind myself every day is perseverance, mm-hmm. uh, perseverance in, in what you believe. Um, because change rarely happens overnight. Uh, and even if it does, it's often a culmination of. of incremental steps and actions that build up and create that change so uh, you know I have a couple of examples but I think we've run out of time so let me just leave it at that but the perseverance yes perseverance if you believe in it you know just keep going keep going and even if you think that you're not making a difference maybe when somebody else is doing something similar somewhere else the your energies coming together is actually going to create that change so don't give up change change does happen Sometimes it takes a little bit longer than uh than those that are impatient among us. Sometimes it hits us and like, Wow, God, did I actually have something to do with that? And you feel good.
0: <laughs> Look, Ayla, thank you very, very much for your time today. I, I love speaking with you and, and getting your take and I think you're uh you're living by that takeaway in terms of your perseverance and your tenacity, uh, which is um admirable I have to say. I don't think um, many people would, would stick with it. And Isla again once again, thank, just you. thank you very much. Really wonderful speaking with you and take no, good care.
1: I, I enjoyed it so much. You've really made me think about a lot of things.
0: Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at Liji.org. That's l-i-d-j-i.org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.